Good morning, church. How's everybody feeling today? All right, good. Well, we are in a series entitled, Then I Met Jesus, and uh, we're talking about ways that Jesus meets folks in the scripture and how he changes their life. Uh, but one of the things that we're doing as well is we're hearing stories from real life folks who are part of our church and how Jesus met them in their life and how he changed their life or brought them comfort or peace in their life. So last week, we heard from our friends Dana, Melissa, Money. They did a fantastic job. Today, I'm joined by my friend Bill Darnell. So church, if you would, could we give him just a little bit of encouragement for being up here today? Thank Thanks you. a lot. Thank you. So, uh, Bill, I, uh, I am excited for you to have the opportunity to share your story today with our church. So why don't you just jump right in and tell us, what was your life like before you met Jesus? Well, I'd like to go back to uh, my childhood, because that's a, a real important piece for all of us, of course. But when I was a, uh, young, uh, I, my father was an abusive alcoholic and it was uh, really bad at, at the house but there was also like pornography everywhere uh, no uh, discipline kind of a thing and um, mom eventually uh, divorced him and remarried who is now my stepfather who adopted me and, and I love very much but there was a there was a lot there that happened um, from birth to 11 that stayed with me all the way through high school through college uh, into my adult life um, because what I modeled was my thought. I had, a, I had addictions, including porn addiction. I didn't respect women at all. I didn't respect myself, and I didn't respect men, so basically I didn't respect anybody. Mm. And so I just left a trail of damaged relationships because I wouldn't let anybody get close. I wanted everybody to stay far away. I didn't want them to know, you know who I really was. And so I lived a fake life out in the public and a different life in private. Uh, had three divorces. Uh, because I was a terrible husband. I was unfaithful to all of them. Um, and after the third wife left me, uh, my sister-in-law, who's a Christian, she was married to my brother, who was also a non-believer, because when we were raised, there was, in, in both families, with my father and with my stepfather, there was, there was no church, there was no Jesus, there was no Bible, there was no prayer, there was none of that. Uh, but my sister-in-law was a Christian, and she invited me to church because I was just hurting. I just felt like, you know, I just was a complete failure uh, with a wife that left me for another man. And so I go, I go to, it's a Methodist church, so I go to the church. This is actually in, in Alabama. And the sermon that day was how to have a great marriage with Jesus Christ in your life. And so I just, I just cried the whole service. And I suppose there was an altar call, but I don't remember it. I don't, I don't remember an actual altar call. I don't, I don't remember getting up out of my seat. This is the truth. But it was a lot like this with some steps. I remember hitting my knees at the steps, crying, looking for a box of Kleenex. I was a complete mess. And the pastor comes over and kneels. I was the only one up there and puts his hand on me. And he says, what is hurting so bad? And I said, my wife left me. And he didn't know me, of course. I said, and I want, I want her to come back. And he said, I can't promise you that your wife will come back. He goes, but what I can promise you is if you'll accept Jesus Christ, He'll change your life. So I gave my life to Christ right there. Amen. Yeah. Okay, so you gave your life to Jesus Christ in that moment, but the change wasn't like instantaneous. And uh, you were kind of sharing that in our first service. So just tell us, like, how did your life begin to change? What began to change it after you met Jesus? 
I want to be real clear with the way I'm going to roll this out because I, because I was really messed up. Jesus has changed me. My wife says, be sure you make that really clear. <laughs> Je- Jesus has changed me. When it's I, when it's I, good to have a wife, isn't <laughs> it? <right>. Yeah. <laughs> right. she's, she's sitting right back there. She's coaching me. And, uh, and so when I, when, you know, that was, I was 40 years old. I'm in my middle 60s now. So when I look back at that bill that planted the cross that day, I like to look at that as, you know, I, I put a stake in the ground. I don't recognize that man anymore. I'm not that man anymore. But when I would go to church, I would put on a fake self. Everything's great. God's good. Oh, man, life's good. But when I left church, I was still doing pornography and drinking and womanizing and the whole night. I had not changed at all. And it's embarrassing to say that, but it's the truth. I'd lived, my, I'd lived the previous 30 years that way, and it just followed me. And I was wandering and stumbling around church. I didn't even have a Bible, so I definitely wasn't in the Word. And there was a small group of men that had a Bible study. There was just three of them in there. And they saw me and invited me to that Bible study. And they were studying Hebrews. I never even heard of Hebrews. So I go in and buy a Bible. And it's unusual for me because I remember I stiff-armed everybody. I wouldn't let anybody close. I go to this Bible study. And after a few months, you know, I'm reading Hebrews. And, and all of a sudden, it hits me one day. Man, I'm a, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm like a really bad sinner. I mean, you know, I, I mean, and so, uh, and so it, that, was, that was the beginning of the change you know, what, you know what I mean obviously when I gave my life to Christ that was that was the catalyst but this was the beginning of the change so I went and I sat with the pastor and he told me Bill uh, statistics say that about 65 percent of people in the church are struggling with things like lust pornography addictions he says it's a big list you know so don't don't let Satan guilt you because he just wants to hold you there Jesus wants to free you from that. And so pornography happens to be a battle that a lot of men fight. And he gave me a book called Every Man's Battle and some coaching. And with his help, I'm no longer addicted to pornography. So. Amen. <clears throat> but I was still an infant in Christ, but an energetic infant, you know. So I was ready to plug in and do things. So the pastor made me the men's ministry leader, which was shocking. That was back in the day of promise keepers, if any of you guys in here have ever heard of them. Um, so it was easy. I just drove people to promise keepers. Uh, and then he made me chair of the staff committee. And so I think he was giving me that responsibility to grow me and to show me that he had faith in me. And he exhibited, you know, Christ's love for me in that way. And so I, I, did, I was growing, but I still wasn't in the Word. I still wasn't reading my Bible at home. I didn't have quiet time. I wasn't... I wasn't growing in my knowledge of, and I know that, that coming to Christ is more than just the knowledge, but I wasn't studying it. So I wasn't working on my relationship with Jesus until 2009 when um, I, I had a sister here in Houston that was, uh, had terminal brain cancer. She would not move to Alabama so I could take care of her. So I quit my job and I moved to Houston and joined another Methodist church where the pastor was involved in prison ministry there and he invited me to come part of prison ministry. And so that's 15 years ago, and I've been in 18 prisons, um, and I can just tell you, it, that is where I really started to grow, but it's also the same time in 2009 when I met my beautiful wife, Linda, who is back here, and um, so as the relationship grew, I knew that I was, I was scared. I'm just not going to lie. I was scared to think about marriage again, because I knew I was the problem. It was crystal clear that I was the problem. And even though I'd found Jesus, I was, I was worried that I would fail again. 
Um, but our relationship grew. So in 2013, I moved over to this side of town so we could see each other more often, and that's when we started coming to H&W. And, uh, and Linda reads her Bible. Let me tell you, that Bible is every color in the world because she highlights and she writes and she studies and she, she helped me to understand what that's like. And so uh, I don't know how many times I read it cover to cover, but it used to be, that became a goal. And so I accomplished that through multiple versions of the Bible, but now I'm slowing down and, and, and letting the words soak in a little bit. I don't need to power through the Bible in a year, just slow down. And so there's been transformation there. And you saw it because you let me be men's ministry leader here for a couple years. And, uh, but I was also acting as a volunteer chaplain in a prison in Navasota. There's two prisons in Navasota. Um, and we were planning a church there. Our first Sunday, we had 37 people in the first Sunday in that church. And, uh, and so Steve encouraged me to get my master's, uh, which helped me um, understand a little bit better about pastoral care and was ordained uh, here by H&W, and that church plant exploded. I can tell you, Steve, I don't know how many hundreds of people have come to Christ at that church and how many people we baptized. Steve would come and preach. But one of the things that, that I see Linda doing, because she goes in now, tom tomorrow my wife is going to be in a prison full of murderers and all kind of bad people, that she is famous for her banana pudding. <laughs> she'll have a bingo game and bring in banana pudding for a hundred guys and uh, pure love pure hospitality they don't understand why Linda does it but they know one thing that banana pudding you want to be on the list to get invited for the, for the bingo <laughs> and so uh, Jesus completely changed me you know but I'm still growing I still have I still have issues that I'm dealing with right I mean I'm, I don't suppose I'll, on this side of heaven I'll ever be done with all the issues but I'm completely different from the man 40 years ago, at 40 years old. Amen. So, yeah. Thank you, Lord. So, if there's a 25-year-old version of Bill sitting out here, or uh, the female version of Bill sitting out here, and they're listening to your story, and you could give them any kind of advice, what, what would you say to them right now? You know, so you've heard a little bit of how messed up I was and that I'm still working on, on those things. I got a guy that I've known for 13 years in prison. His name's, his name's Darian. And so I, I want to give you some, something that Lynn and I see often, which is a way extreme harder case that, that never thought God would forgive him. Uh, he was five years old. His mom was a prostitute. He never knew who his father was. It's a, it's a hard story. Uh, one night, because he collected the money at the door, um, a man came in and then killed the mother and robbed him. And so his uncle took him into the gang. And when Darian was 10, he killed his first person. And he'll tell you, he didn't know how many people he's killed because he didn't go check to see if they were dead after he shot them. But he was angry at women because he felt like his mom abandoned him. And he was angry with men because of what they did to the mom. And so he hated everybody which I connected with because I didn't respect anybody. You know what I mean? And, um, and so one weekend, uh, Darian gave his life to Christ. And that was, that was 12 years ago. And he is a changed, he's, he can look back and he just, the hate's gone, the unforgiveness is gone, he's accepted forgiveness, he's forgiven people, and he walks around smiling. He's, he's in our, all of our Bible studies, he attends church every single Sunday. He's a changed man. I would have that man as my neighbor no matter what he did in the past. 
Amen. So if Amen. God, if God will do, if God will change me, and if God will change Darian, what, whatever it is you're dealing with, I promise you, because I'm living it, God will change you and will help you. Amen. Amen. Love it. Now I don't, I don't know if they're here today, but one thing I just want to add on to the story. So uh, Bill, after he came to faith. We, we don't have time to go into this whole thing, but his mom, Julie, and then his stepfather, Glenn, how old were they? They were 78 and 77. 78 and 77, both came to faith and were baptized here at Houston Northwest right. after they saw what God did in yeah. his life. And you know, and they didn't understand why we would go into prison. They just didn't understand it. And a lot of people don't understand that. And uh, so if you're wondering why we do that, I would love to talk to you. But but God, through nothing that we did, I mean, we, through nothing that we did, God changed my, the hearts of my parents. They came to church one Sunday because we basically begged them. And it's, like Steve said, it's a long, great story. Uh, six months later, we're baptizing and, and that kind of thing. So God never stopped pursuing my parents regardless of anything else in life. You know, it's, that's the beautiful thing. He didn't stop pursuing me no matter how messed up I was, and he never stopped pursuing my parents. Amen. Thanks, Bill, for being with us today. Church, let's thank you. Okay, church, so if you would, go ahead and get your Bible. And uh, take that out. We are going to be in the Gospel of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 5, and we are going to start in verse 27. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Now, what I want to do is I just want to pray for us and ask God to meet us in this space as, as we open his word today. Lord, thanks for changing Bill, and by extension, changing many others and Lord, today I pray, would you meet us in this space and, and change some people today? And then let us, by extension, see many others changed. God, we love you. We thank you for all that you give, for who you are, Lord. We love you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen and amen. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27, reads... After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now, there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we talked about those of us who may have been raised in church, who are insiders that needed a fresh introduction to the gospel. Today, we're going to talk about those like Bill, who at one point were on the outside, but then were brought into the kingdom. Today, we're going to talk about the way that that happens, and it is through the scandalous, generous hospitality of our God. 
One of the things that's beautiful about Bill's testimony is it is how God's love broke into his life, even though it seems completely impossible. And today what I believe is that there are some who are in this room who need God's love to break into their lives, but they wonder if it could actually happen to them. They're the people who say, well, if I walk into the church, the building will fall in on me. Or if I walk into church, lightning's gonna strike me. What I want you to hear today, if you are sort of sitting in the seats, hiding, thinking that you fit that category, God wants to speak to you today. What I want you to know is that God wants to extend radical, scandalous hospitality to even you. Today's story is about the calling of Levi. Levi is also known as Matthew, the same person who wrote down the Gospel of Matthew. And there's a famous painting that recounts his call by Jesus. It's done by an artist named Caravaggio. Caravaggio's painting called The Calling of St. Matthew demonstrates the moment where Jesus reaches out and encounters Matthew at a tax booth and calls him. And you see Jesus there below the open window, light streaming over his hand, Jesus in the shadows, but his hand barely lightened, reaching out to Matthew. And you can see Matthew there pointing back at himself saying, who, me? This painting demonstrates a moment where his life was changed, and I want us to see how that happens for people here today who think that they could never be called, and this is the first thing I would, hear, I would have you hear, is that God will show you that he wants you by demonstrating stunning hospitality, the stunning hospitality of God. In verse 27 and 28, we see Jesus walking by this tax collector booth and calling out to Matthew, one of the most surprising things about having faith in Jesus is the day that we discover that we actually don't want the very thing that we think that we want. So Levi, the tax collector, um, he's probably thought his entire life that what he wants is money because you would only become a tax collector if you wanted money because you would be rejected by all of your friends. So Levi is a Jewish name, uh, but he was collecting taxes for the Romans. That meant that he betrayed his own people, but he did it so that he could have as much money as possible. I'm sure that there's some of us in this room who have felt that way at a certain point in our life. We felt like if I could just have money, then I could be significant, I could have influence in the community. And so Levi, as a young man, made the decision to abandon his own people and chase down as much money as he could possibly get. So that's what he decided to do. But then there comes a moment where he looks around at life and he realizes, I've got all this money, I've got all this influence, but I have no love. Who are the people who surround a tax collector? Just other greedy people. There's no one who actually cares for him, who loves him, who actually wants to receive him, who wants to have community with him. There's no one like that in Matthew's life. And on that day, the day when he's feeling the lowest, I even wonder if Levi had seen Jesus around town doing things, teaching of God, performing miracles, if, if, if word had received, if word had come to him about who Jesus was. And in that moment, Jesus calls him. I mean, the story is so short. But Levi just seems to get up and, and move from his table immediately. Why? Because he had discovered that the thing that he thought he wanted was not what he actually wanted. And today, I bet there's some of us in this room who thought that we wanted something, but discovered, maybe even right now, that we wish we had something else. Let's go back to that painting by Caravaggio the calling of St. Matthew. There's a, a cool detail in this painting that I love. Um, if you notice 
the painting, you'll see Jesus extending his arm, his hand there. Now, he's not pointing with one single finger, which is kind of what you would anticipate, that he would be pointing right at Matthew and say, you, you're the one that I want. But you don't see that. It's almost like his hand is in the act of opening, like he's about to point to Matthew. Now, you've probably seen this other painting that I'm gonna show you. This is a detail from the Sistine Chapel. This particular detail is known as the creation of Adam. Uh, this was painted by Michelangelo. And so we see there the outstretched pointed finger of God touching the outstretched hand of Adam. And it's in that moment where God is putting life into the body of Adam. Now, Caravaggio, historian, painter, genius, he did something that you might miss at first. But if you zoom in on a detail in that painting, you will notice that Jesus' outstretched hand is a mirror image of the hand of Adam from the Sistine Chapel. So what's Caravaggio trying to say? He's saying Jesus is the second Adam. He's the one in whom all life has been redeemed. Now what you would expect then is to see a finger reaching out to touch it like you would see in the Sistine Chapel, but we don't see that. We don't see an outstretched finger pointing, but there is actually a finger that points in that painting. It's just pointing back at Matthew, right? So what's happening in that moment is Jesus, the second Adam, extending his hand saying, I will choose the place now where the life of God that has entered me will enter someone else. And who does it enter? It enters into Matthew, the one who ought to be rejected is welcomed at the table of Christ. Amen. It's there in that moment that he discovers the power of the radical hospitality of Jesus. Now, hospitality is something that we tend to think of with regards to our friends or when we're throwing a party. The gospel message is this. God shows hospitality to the people we would categorize as enemies. I'm gonna say that again. The gospel message is God showing hospitality to those we would categorize as enemies. Life comes when God chooses Matthew. And life comes to your heart, to your life, when God chooses you. Whenever you were a kid, it was fun whenever you had your buddies and they would invite you over to their house. And I don't know about you, but whenever I was a kid, sometimes I would say like, man, I'd become friends with someone. I'd say, man, I wanna go to your house. Now, we don't do that as adults, right? We don't go up to people and say, hey, I wanna go to your house. You know, that'd be rude. But when you're a kid, that's what you say. And what's happening here in this moment is Jesus extending his hand, selecting Matthew, saying, I want to honor you by coming to your home. That's the way that hospitality and honor worked in the ancient world, was that to go to someone's house was a sign that you honored them with your presence. To sit in someone's house was one of the greatest acts of honor that you could bestow. And so God demonstrates hospitality by becoming flesh and sitting at the table of someone who would be hated and despised in his own community. He demonstrates radical hospitality. This is, of course, what the incarnation is. The incarnation is God's most radical act of hospitality where he says, I won't just sit with Matthew, I will sit with anyone in the human race who wants me to be part of his or her life. 
The Greek word for the fear of strangers is the word xenophobia. The word xenophilia is the opposite of that, which literally means the love of strangers, but it's translated in the New Testament as hospitality. Xenophilia, loving strangers, hospitality, that's the gospel. Welcoming the people that others would shun and saying, God believes that sitting at the table with you is the thing that demonstrates his very heart. The scandalous hospitality of Jesus is that he invites people to the table that we think shouldn't be there. We've probably got a short list of folks that we think, well, God can invite some people, but now those folks over there, they don't belong at the table. And what Jesus would say is, I threw that list away the day that I became human. Levi knows that he shouldn't be allowed to follow Jesus. Levi knows he's not a person of incredible faith. He's been bilking people and betraying his neighbors for years. He's doing the opposite of loving his neighbor. And yet, whenever Jesus calls, he stands up and follows him because the thing that he thought he wanted was not what he wanted at all. He wanted to be loved, forgiven, received, and accepted by God. This is what the gospel is. God invites you into life by giving you the thing you actually want. Unconditional, fully expressed love and acceptance. Now this kind of radical hospitality does something. Specifically, it does this second thing we'll see in verse 29. It begets even more stunning hospitality. In verse 29 we read, Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now, there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. If you were going to throw a party for Jesus, who would you invite? The deacons from church? That's not what Levi does. He says, I know the people who need to know Jesus. It's all the other tax collectors. And so Jesus sits down and has dinner with the very people that most religious folks in town would say, whatever you do, stay far away from that crowd. There's a lot of hand-wringing today about the future of the American evangelical church, and rightfully so for a lot of reasons that I don't have time to go into today. And I can't fix that from this pulpit, but I would tell you, if there is one thing that I think that we could do as a church that would fix a lot of our reputation and evangelism problems, it would be this, that we would actually practice the scandalous, radical hospitality of Jesus in our own homes. Amen. That we would welcome people, yeah, we can clap for that, we can clap for that. <clears throat> that we would welcome people to our tables in our own homes that would raise the eyebrow of our Instagram followers. When was the last time that you considered your own life and you thought, you know, it's pretty radical that God forgave me, that God welcomed me to sit at his own table? If you've been raised in church, if you've lived a quote-unquote pretty good life, you might struggle to understand the depths of God's hospitality towards you. But what I want you to hear today is that whenever you Sit in this place, you are a recipient of that hospitality, and it ought to make you open your life and open your table to people that people who are religious would think that's pretty scandalous that they would invite them over. Now, don't get me wrong, it's good to have your friends over, cook out some burgers, hang out, their kids, your kids, good, good stuff. 
But what happens when you have people over who, at least at first blush, everybody else considers your enemies and you treat them like an honored guest? There's a lot of things that can happen, but I'll tell you one of the things that'll happen. God will change your heart towards them. and God will change their hearts towards you. One of the problems, one of the reasons that we often say that we have enemies is we have not taken the time to sit down, hear a story, and share our heart. I wanna tell you some truths or some stories for just a moment. This is not so that you think I'm awesome, I'm not trying to make myself out to be a superhero. I just want you to know that God has worked in my heart on this particular topic so deeply that I have worked to practice the very thing that I'm preaching. So I'm gonna share with you these people because I want you to know I've done this thing and I understand how it can be frightening or challenging, but also how good it really is. Who are some of the people who have sat in my dining room? Well, the leadership of the mosque off old Luetta gathered around my dining room and had dinner with me and my wife and she fixed that she prepared for them. There was a group of lesbian women who attended the church plant that we started many years ago who sat at our table for hours and hours for many meals who heard what we believed about Jesus. A rabbi and his wife who've heard us testify to the goodness of God sitting at our table. Teenagers uninterested in faith, adults skeptical in faith, a person who used to be a believer but became jaded. Here's the thing, this is again, not so that you think that I'm great, but so that you will hear me when I tell you this. The space where they listened to the gospel of Jesus was not me standing on a platform. It was sitting in a chair across a table. And if we will not open our own hearts and our own homes to the people that we believe to be our enemies, I believe we are stopping short of the radical, scandalous grace, the hospitality God showed to us. A lot of us learned kind of formulas, ways to share the gospel whenever we grew up in church. And I wanna just tell you right now, those formulas are great, they're helpful, signposts in a conversation, but many of us have convinced ourselves that we can't have those people over or into our lives because, quote unquote, we wouldn't know what to say. Poppycock. There's a Holy Spirit and he's in you. Here's what happens. You have people over, God will give you the words that you need to say, and if you don't know the answer, you know what you can say? I don't know, but I love you anyway. Sometimes it's not, what you, it's not what you say, it's how you live. And if you will extend that kind of grace, people at least can say, well, I don't know about those crazies they show on TV, but the Christian I know lives like Jesus. In the last several years, sociologists have noticed a phenomenon called the great sort, where people are growing less and less likely to live or to worship with people who are different from them. One of my favorite things about this church is we have defied the great sort. We have people who look very different, have very different backgrounds, very different political views, who gather together and submit those perspectives to Jesus. Most people right now are changing states and houses of worship to be near people who look just like them. But I believe that the radical grace of God as manifested in hospitality will challenge that mindset in us to the place that we will be willing to be shoulder to shoulder with people who may be different but are called brother and sister.
I have a friend who pastors a church that he, he's Korean. He told me that his church is a multi-Asian church. I thought that was pretty great. Uh, not multi-ethnic, but multi-Asian. He says, we do have a few minority white people in our church. Uh, it's up in, up in the Dallas area. They do home groups on Friday nights and then a worship gathering on Sunday morning. He told me we have more people on Friday nights than we do on Sundays. I said, why? He says, because people feel comfortable starting across a table. Hospitality, being welcomed in, is what a lot of people are looking for today. Now, if you receive the deep hospitality of God and then in turn it pushes you to demonstrate the hospitality of God, what will happen? Well, lives will be changed. You heard that from Bill's story earlier. But verse 30, you'll get a few complaints. The Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They weren't just asking questions. They were complaining. Every party has a pooper, I guess. So here come the religious folks, and they say, you can't eat with them. You can't hang out with them. Why? Well, because they don't fit with us. They're going to mess up the crowd. They're going to teach us things or say things. They're going to throw off our theology. They're going to make us unclean. They're going to make us look bad in the community. And I'm going to tell you right now, and this can be tricky in church, when you start welcoming people into your life group, into your home, into your Bible study, who have different theology, different political views, different backgrounds, they may say things that sound confusing or potentially could throw things off base. And yet at the same time, that's a terrible excuse to not show hospitality. Yes. Fear does not win. Love is greater than fear. Amen. One of the great dangers, I believe, of us who were raised in church is that we can forget just how radical of hospitality God has shown to us, and because of that, we can sometimes slip into gatekeeper mode. And what we tend to do is we like to build a fence around the flock rather than opening the table and pulling up an extra chair. When the church chooses to love the people that they believe ought to be rejected, then we surprise those in the world with the thing that surprised us, which is the grace and the hospitality of God. This is how people are changed. People are rarely changed by arguments on social media, right? I mean, we get on YouTube and what do we see? Pastor destroys atheist. But does that really change an atheist who watches that video? No, because there are videos that say, atheist destroys pastor. You know what changes people? Sitting down face to face and getting to know one another. This verse 31, Jesus replied to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. You know why Jesus calls the sick? Because the sick person who is healed will tell every other sick person how they got healthy. Amen. But the people who've been healthy for a while, they tend to forget the fact they ever needed a doctor in the first place. Yeah. Bill didn't talk about this in his testimony, but he was making great money and a great career. And now as a prison chaplain, in case you didn't know, he's making a whole lot less. A whole lot less. But what happens once you've discover Jesus, you'll go all the way. Here's the thing that I want you to know. I have discovered over the years that the people who don't know Jesus and they understand they need grace, 
when they encounter him, they will run and give everything for him. Whereas a lot of us who've been around church a long time, we're always looking for reasons to give a little less. What does radical hospitality do? It ought to make us more hospitable. You know what happened to Levi? Levi, according to church tradition, died while leading a worship service. Caravaggio did another painting called The Martyrdom of St. Matthew that uh, demonstrates a portrait of the end of his life. And it's there where Matthew is being tortured um, at the front of a church that I think you kind of get this beautiful picture. Levi, the tax collector, started his ministry because Jesus met him in a moment right before a banquet. His ministry started with a meal, right? He opened his home up to others. And then the very last act of Levi's ministry was presiding over the Lord's Supper table. It was presiding over a meal. Beautiful bookends to his faith journey. And what I want you to hear today is that if you think you're so messed up that God couldn't receive you and God wouldn't use you, what I want you to know, you might be stunned to discover what God has done with people like that across the last 2,000 years. Matthew 21, verse 31, Jesus says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Like there are people that Jesus is talking to who know the scripture and he says, you know what? The people who are tax collectors and prostitutes get it before you do because they at least understand their need for grace. Some of us today, I think, need to be reminded just how deeply we've been graced today. This is the hospitality that God extended to Levi. This is the hospitality that I hope that we would extend to our neighbors. And this is the hospitality that God invites you into today. Jesus demonstrates his love by pulling up a chair to the table and saying, I wanna sup with you. Will you grab a chair and pull up to a table with him? And will you make room at the table for anyone in your life who needs to be invited in as well? Would you pray with me? So here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna pray right now for anyone in this room, anyone in this room who might consider themselves like Bill to be too far gone. You think, man, God wouldn't bring me, wouldn't receive me. Yeah, he would. He wants you right now. There is nothing that you have done that is too big for the grace of God. In the first service, multiple people surrendered their life to Jesus, and you can do so right now. If you say, I'm ready, I'm ready to surrender my life to Jesus, I need the kind of change that he brings, the love that he brings, I'm ready to be baptized and to surrender and to follow him be all in. That's you. I want to pray for you right now. All I want to ask you to do is just to let me know that you're ready by raising your hand right now. Would you just raise your hand and say, Steve, that's me. Raise it up where I can see it. Okay. All right. I see you, sir. Who else? Anybody else? Raise it up where I can see it. Okay, only saw one, there might be others. But let's just pray right now. Lord, this man, 
He's raised his hand. He said, I'm ready. I'm ready to follow Jesus, ready to surrender my heart and my life to him. And just pray, sir, that you just pray with me right now. God, I give my life to you. God, I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready to be baptized. I'm ready to go public and to go all the way, follow Jesus. Lord, I pray this and I ask God that you would give me forgiveness, that you would give me eternal life and you would give me the power to change that comes through your Holy Spirit. Pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Church, let's give a round of applause and thank God for what's happened today. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you have any questions about what you just heard, we'd love to talk with you. You can get connected at hnw.org about what we believe or how to join a small group or follow us on social media as well. Thank you so much for joining us and we'd love to see you soon.